Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. In today's episode, we continue with our concern with ambiguity, but now turn to the issue of ambivalence, discuss the relationship between ambivalence and ambiguity, and then turn to two songs from indie rock of the late 90s and early 2000s to illustrate our concerns. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. ambiguity and ambivalence are two very different terms with meanings that are not at all synonymous. Ambiguity, as discussed in the last episode, involves a statement that can be taken to mean two or more different things, and is thus unclear as to its intention. Ambiguity is the refusal to be pinned down to any form of clarity. In everyday discourse, we might think of this as inexactitude, uh, and thus something to be avoided. But as I tried to make the case in the, in the last episode, ambiguity, that very inexactitude, is a hallmark of art. Art, too easily explained, ceases to function as art. I don't generally traffic in universalizing dicta, but I think this one is defensible. Art generates questions rather than answers, for the most part. Art invites the recipient to engage in play, and play requires that things aren't totally locked down. Let's take a simple analogy. When you have something bolted down and you say it still has some play in it, you mean it's still loose. It's not locked firmly into place. There's wiggle room. Most of the time, that's not something you want in something you're attempting to bolt down. But now apply that same thinking to art. Do you really want an artwork that can only be understood in one way? An artwork that has no play in it whatsoever? No looseness? No room for you to wiggle your way through it? I'm hazarding a guess that none of us really want that. The adventure in art is our engagement and the open, playful quality of that engagement, even with very serious works of art. So in one sense, we might say that ambiguity is in the object, right? It's in the artwork or in the statement or whatever. The lack of clarity is somehow there in the statement or in the artwork. But of course, it isn't as simple as that. Ambiguity also involves our reception of that statement. This is important in art. Take the famous Magritte painting called The Treachery of Images. It's a painting of a pipe with the phrase uh, Ceci n'est pas un pipe uh, written beneath it. Right? And that statement simply means this is not a pipe. So you have a pipe, a very clear representation of a pipe, and then a statement negating that representation. That statement is found underneath a very studiously clear painting of a pipe. There's no seemingly no ambiguity in the image and no ambiguity in the statement. It's when they're brought together that we get some kind of ambiguity. Now, in one sense, right, Magritte is correct, even in the juxtaposition, because this is not a pipe. It's a painting of a pipe. If you try to smoke it, you'll get in trouble with the uh, people that run the museum. But that's always the case with painting. A painting of a dog is not a dog. It's a painting. A painting of the Eiffel Tower is not the Eiffel Tower. It's a painting. You get the point. But by placing that caveat underneath a painting that we understand very well to be a painting, no one is going to think that it's an actual pipe. So the, the caveat is superfluous. But by insisting on the superfluity of that caveat, 
Magritte seems to be inviting us to play a somewhat arcane game. That is, we're asked to wade into the troubling waters of representation. What is it to say something represents something else? What is it to have a, a painting of a pipe and it's nothing but canvas and paint, and you say, oh, that's a pipe? The painting represents a pipe, but it's not a pipe. And yet, clearly, in some fashion, it says this is a pipe. So the artwork has a very clear contradiction to it. The, the pipe, the, the painting of the pipe says, hey, this is a pipe, while the statement underneath says this is not a pipe. Again, in one sense, there's no ambiguity. We know what's, what's being said here. We understand that representation is not the thing. And yet, at the same time, we take it for the thing to such an extent that this is where the element of play comes in, the element of ambiguity. How are we to understand the statement that we all know to be true and yet don't act as though it's true most of the time? Ambivalence is a different thing, right? It comes at the issue from the opposite direction. If we say that at least to a broad extent we conceptualize ambiguity as being in the object, even though it's not entirely as we just demonstrated, ambivalence we think of as being in the subject, right? It is in me or you or whomever is evaluating a given situation. Because that's what ambivalence involves. That's what the valence part of the word points to. Value. Ambivalence means holding two contradictory modes of valuing a thing simultaneously. So I value and disvalue the thing at the same time, which is the most typical version of ambivalence, right? In the, in the most quotidian of examples, we can think about takeout, right? I want tacos and I want a burger. I pretty much always want either tacos or a burger. I don't want to actually eat both. I'm not that hungry. I want to eat one or the other, but I'm equally drawn to both. It isn't that I don't care. That would be indifference. I do care. I'm just truly divided between tacos and a burger. Now, we sometimes get frustrated with the ambivalent person or even with ambivalence in ourselves. Just make a decision already so life can move on, life can move forward. But here's the thing. Applied to real life, ambivalence isn't the exception that we might think it is. It's the rule. I can't think of anything that I value in one unified and uniform manner. You could think of this as just the pros and cons lists that we all carry around with us continuously, right? I like these things about being in a relationship, or I like these things about tacos, to stick with a quotidian example, but I don't like these things, pros and cons. But that implies that I have some scale where I weigh the benefits and, and, and detractions uh, that, and then come to a verdict but I don't think we generally live this way. Sometimes, sure. And, and those are the times that draw our conscious attention because we are very alert to making decisions, I think. I think that we take, we take for granted, or not take for granted, we, we focus too much on the decision-making part of our consciousness. We act as though that's what consciousness really is. But it's not. There's more, right? Even if, if, if the decision-making grabs our attention a lot, there's more to what we do in our minds and in our relationship to the world. In general, I think we find a way to embrace contradictions. So it's not about making decisions. We find things in the world that we both like and don't like. And yet that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that we're just weighing the scales and then we say, well, there are more benefits than detractions, so therefore I'm going to, I'm going to go with this thing. I mean, after all, haven't you ever heard somebody say, I love him or her because of and not in spite of his or her flaws? So ambivalence isn't some 
some momentary lapse of, of the ability to make decisions. Ambivalence is where we live. It's what we do on a regular basis. We're ambivalent about everything, whether we want to acknowledge that or not. Ambivalence, moreover, was key, I think, to the 90s and early 2000s. Generation X coming to young adulthood in the 90s were often described with the word disaffected. Now, literally, disaffection is the dissatisfaction with those people and ideals in authority and the unwillingness to hold allegiance with and support that authority. When used as a term of opprobrium, as an insult, which is generally the case, disaffection seems to be employed as a synonym with indifference. Right? I remember an older person that I used to play guitar with when I was in my early 20s uh, would say, you know, oh, I can't stand the disaffected youth of today. He didn't mean it as a compliment. But I think that's a mistake to think that it's indifference. Because his idea was we just don't, didn't care. My generation just didn't care. I think that's wrong. It's not the case that the disaffected find no value in traditional ideals and modes of authority, that's the only form of value that this affected have experienced. And I would argue they're well aware of the blandishments and joys of those ideals. But the disaffected are also aware of the losses and the costs involved. The disaffected are looking for an otherwise, another way of doing things, evaluating things. And since this desire is not for an ideal or a mode of being that already currently exists, there's an openness or a play involved, the play of ambivalence. There's a concern for bringing into being something better, but undefined, something that does not yet exist, but also perhaps something that can exist in any concrete way, because that would be to define it, to pin it down, and therefore to subject it to the decay that belongs to everything of this world. And I think that's where the, the, the sort of depression, the, the depressive aspect of the late 90s comes into play. Because that's a melancholic insight. Now, I guess I don't think of this as the sole possession of the 90s or Generation X. I think of it as a human condition, but it's one we often downplay for our own convenience. It's hard to live this way. To know that the things we value are also not so great for us all the time, and the things we might avoid also have value. That we don't belong in some real sense to the world. And yet we bear responsibility for that world. This is the realization that experience is fraught with contradiction. That the best possible thing in your life can also be the worst possible thing. And that the darkest tragedy we suffer often has the potential for enlightenment. Now, some music of the late 90s and early alts, particularly what is sometimes labeled alternative music or, or, or indie rock, those aren't necessarily the same thing. But I, uh, what I'm suggesting is that, that those two... Um, broad categories often capture some of the ambivalence of that era quite well. This music, at its best, alerts us to the contradictory nature of experience, to the notion that hope and despair are not so much opposites as they are traveling companions. We'll look at one song each during the next two segments, both from bands within the indie rock scene of Athens, Georgia. First, Neutral Milk Hotel's O Comely, and then Nana Grizzle's Mississippi Swells.
Neutral Milk Hotel's 1998 album, In the Aeroplane Over the Sea, has become such a signifier for indie rock hipness that I think we sometimes forget just how great this album really was and is. By far, one of the most celebrated aspects of the album are Jeff Mangum's lyrics. Uh, as almost everyone knows that, that, that knows about the album, the album involves Anne Frank. And you're going to probably hear me use the word involve quite a bit in what follows because I should, I should issue a few quick uh, caveats. First of all, I'm not going to try with this song nor with the song we'll look at in the next segment. I'm not trying to tell you what the song is about. I'm not sure, especially with this song, that I even know what it's about. I'm not sure that anyone can know exactly what it's about. Rather, the song's lyrics and the song as such involve various ideas, issues, personae, uh, historical moments, uh, ideas about, about maturation and, and the things that change in one's life, sexuality, and so on. I wouldn't say it's about any of those things. Rather, it involves those things. What we're interested in primarily here is the way that the, um, the lyrics project through their ambiguity, project a certain level of ambivalence. And, and this is the connection that I'm interested in here. As we already said in the last segment, ambivalence and ambiguity are two different things. And in a very simple way, we can say that, that ambiguity involves the object. The ambiguity is in the statement or in the object the art object, whatever, whereas ambivalence involves the recipient, the subject, right? It's, it's I looking at an object, which may be a very simple object, and still have um, somewhat contradictory valuations of that object. So that's in me. But of course, it involves my relationship to the object, just as ambiguity re involves my relationship to either the object or the, um, the, the statement. So what I'm interested in here is how this tune can bring in elements of ambiguity within the lyrics in order to project this sense of, of disaffection, if you want to put it in that, that term, or in my preferred term, uh, ambivalence. The song is not clear even as to what the object is, right? The song uses the word you quite a bit, but I think it's fairly clear uh, in, in the uh, ambiguous manner in which anything's clear in this song, that the you shifts, right? Um, it opens with O Comely, right? So uh, the title of the, of the track. Comely, of course, being a synonym for the word beautiful or attractive, right? So he's clearly singing to some, someone that he finds attractive. And he says, O Comely, I will be with you when you lose your breath, chasing the only meaningful memory you had left with some pretty bright and bubbly, terrible scene that was doing her thing on your chest. And that's the opening uh, stanza, right? There are a few things that stand out. First of all, uh, the, the bright and bubbly, right? Some pretty bright and bubbly, terrible scene. This kind of contradiction uh, goes on throughout the whole thing. And again, I don't think that it's meant to be just a, a simple contradiction of I was talking about something pretty and now I'm talking about something terrible. Rather, he's seen the two as, as being, as I said in the last segment, traveling uh, partners, right? Traveling companions. It's not that one is replaced by the other or one simply contradicts the other, but rather that, that the um, scenarios and the imagery that's being presented in this song involve both the heavenly and the hellish, the beautiful and the terrible. Um, 
there's a it seems to me that there's probably a reference here already to Anne Frank again to think of this entire song as being an ode to Anne Frank seems misguided to me but the the um terrible scene that was doing her thing on on uh your chest but oh comely it isn't as pretty as you'd like to guess in your memory you're drunk we'll come back to that part but um, the, the important thing here is the terrible scene that was doing her thing on your chest that isn't as pretty as you like to guess. There's a scene in Anne Frank's diary where she's talking about wanting to touch another young lady. And it's a fantasy scene, right? So it's, it, it won't be as pretty as you'd like to guess is, I guess, what Mangum is saying about it. Um, and, but notice how I could easily be wrong. Notice that, that this is not a straightforward uh, presentation of, of an image of Anne Frank. Uh, it could be that. It could be about whoever O'Comley is at this stage in the song. And even that line, in uh, uh, you're drunk on your all to me, it doesn't mean anything at all. Seems to me to be almost programmatic in some ways. First of all, the, the ambiguous element of the grammar here, drunk on your all to me, as opposed to you're all of me or you're all for me, right? Uh, which would mean that the person that that's being sung to is in awe in some fashion with the narrator, with Mangum. Um, but it's not that. It's drunk on your all to me. So somehow the other person is drunk on the all that, that, uh, that the narrator feels toward them. Um, and uh, what that means is not, I don't think, meant to be clear. In fact, I think that's what the following line is trying to um, clarify. It doesn't mean anything at all. That a lot of experience, we think of experiences as meaningful. We say that all the time. I want to have a meaningful experience. But if we think of meaning as something that we can paraphrase, then experience isn't really meaningful in that sense at all. Experience is the unparaphrasable, right? Uh, and I'm not saying that, that meaning has to be what is paraphrasable, but that's what we often take it to be, right? When we say, oh, well, what's the meaning of that poem? The expectation is I give you some answer. I'm paraphrasing the poem. I'm, I'm rewording it. I'm interpreting it in order to tell you what underlies it, what it means. But maybe there's no underlying meaning to experience. Maybe the richness of experience is that you can't summarize it. You can't take away a statement and say, well, there it is. That, that's what the experience was. But rather, the experience is so thick. It's so involved in, in one's uh, being wrapped up in it that uh, there's no one clear meaning or value that comes out of it. And hence, we're back to ambivalence, the idea that any experience will involve uh, uh, several valuations at once. We see a similar thing in the next stanza. Oh, comely, all your friends are letting you blow, bristling and ugly, bursting with fruits falling from your holes, of uh, some pretty bright and bubbly friends you could need to say uh, comforting things in your ear. So notice the pretty bright and bubbly returns. Right. Um, and again, is juxtaposed with things with statements like bristling and ugly. Uh, and then this wonderful I'm assuming that th this is a uh, allusion to the maturation of sexual organs. Right. Uh, I'm not positive, but it's it's this wonderful surrealistic image bursting with fruits falling out from the holes of some pretty bright and bubbly friend. You could need to say comforting things in your ear. Obviously, there's something about intimacy here the saying comforting things in your ear uh but uh, but in the fruits right the fruits of one's loins the ovaries in the fruits of one's ovaries the eggs and so on right that there's this allusion to um the body here and and the sort of output 
of that body. Now, all of this so far seems to me might allude, the, the one part might allude to Anne Frank, but whatever, the addressee seems to be this person that's being addressed as O Comely, right? This, this uh, object of desire of some sort. Um, but then, of course, this idea of the friend gets immediately negated. There isn't one such friend that you could find here standing next to me, only my enemy. And I'll crush him with everything I own, say what you want to, hang for your hollow ways, moving your mouth to pull out your miracle for me. Uh, and then it seems to me that, that the subject either shifts or at least the focus of attention shifts. Because the next stanza uh, has, again, some rather disturbing lines. Uh, your father made fetuses with flesh-licking ladies while you and your mother were asleep in the trailer park. Right? Um, again, notice uh, the way in which, in which sex is, is here kind of made disgusting. Right. Uh, I'm assuming that's what's being said here is that the father uh, uh, impregnated other women, right? Made fetuses. Um, um, perhaps they were aborted. Doesn't say aborted fetuses. Just says made fetuses with flesh licking ladies, uh, which makes them sound monstrous, right? Um, and then again, more more uh, self evident contradictions. Uh, he then alludes to this addressee's need for music, and so he says, "So make all your fat fleshy fingers to moving, and pluck all your silly strings, and bend all your notes for me. Soft silly music is meaningful, magical. The movements were beautiful, all in your ovaries." All right? There's something that this sort of twisting. Uh, path of valuation that goes on here. Uh, flat, fleshy fingers, again, it goes along with the flesh-licking ladies, right? There's something almost disgusting about it. Um, but then immediately after that, there's something that trivializes uh, the whole thing, the pluck all your silly strings. And then an, a, a phrase, bend all your notes for me, which is a callback to an earlier song in the album, the title track, actually, that uses that same phrase about bending your notes. To, to me, the, the bending your notes is... is uh, meant to convey something sweet in the song. So we've moved from the, the disgusting to the, uh, to the silly, the, the, um, the cute, to uh, something beautiful. Um, and then it goes back again, right? Soft, silly music is meaningful, magical. That which is silly is usually thought of as not being particularly meaningful, right? Um, so again, this juxtaposition of, uh, of valuation that goes on through the whole thing. Soon we return to a very obvious allusion to Anne Frank. I know they buried her body with others, her sister and mother and 500 families. And will she remember me 50 years later? I wished I could save, uh, I could save her in some sort of time machine. So notice what goes on there, right? Uh, the first part seems to me pretty straightforwardly talking about Anne Frank. Uh, they buried her body with others, her sister and mother and 500 families, right? The uh, obvious allusion to the Holocaust. But then the, the next line is, of course, impossible. Will she remember me 50 years later? Uh, she doesn't, Anne Frank didn't know him at all, right? Um, and so it's curious as to what that means, this, this way of making the object of one's reverie into a kind of observer so that you become the text or, or the narrator. And then the kind of silly fantasy, right? Uh, I wish I could save her in some sort of time machine. And there's something kind of trivializing about that in a kind of sadly beautiful way. After all, he doesn't say, oh, I wish I had a time machine to stop the war, to stop the Holocaust, right? Uh, that it's something about her in particular. And there's no reason that I can see 
humanity-wise or, or, or empathy-wise, why you would want to save one person over another just, and again, I'm not trying to trivialize things here, but just because one person seemed to have kept a diary that was then found and published, right? Um, but it is the fact, I think, that he is able, that we are able in reading that book to get partway into the thoughts of this person that we couldn't have possibly known and that couldn't possibly know us, which again brings us back to that line, will she remember me 50 years later, that makes her a sort of strange object of, of a childish desire to build a time machine and go back and save just her. The song ends with another shift, uh, clearly lyrics that, or at least it seems clear to some scholars, lyrics that were meant uh, for a totally different song. So now we, we get a name, but it doesn't seem to be uh, the person that we've, we've heard the narrator sing to thus far. I'll just read the ending. Goldaline, rather, my dear, we will fold and freeze together far away from here. There is sun and spring and green forever, but now we move to feel for ourselves inside some stranger's stomach. Place your body here. Let your skin begin to blend itself with mine. Notice that last line seems to go along with all of the fleshy imagery that we've had throughout. The idea of your skin blending with mine isn't a terrible metaphor for sex. And yet here, you're in the, the narrator and, and Goldaline are in the digestive uh, tract or, or in, the, in, in the stomach of a, uh, of a stranger, of some monstrous thing that swallowed them both. And so the blending of flesh to flesh here has to do with disillusion, has to do with, with digestion. I have no idea what any of this means. I don't think that we're supposed to know what it means necessarily. The song itself is is mostly centered around an E major chord juxtaposed with a C major chord. And so you have that G sharp, G natural thing going on throughout. And sometimes he even sings the G natural over the E major chord, giving it this kind of strange, haunting, bluesy character where it doesn't feel like the blues at all. It's almost like the ghost of, of the blues. It's, it's, the, it's the specter of something left behind by the blues, something left behind by the enormity and the ambivalence of experience. We'll have a very different, I think, uh, understanding or, or, or experience with the next song um, by Nana Grisola, a song called Mississippi Swells. Let's turn to that next. Thank you. 
For both O Comely and the song we're about to look at, Mississippi Swells, I'm assuming that you're listening to it on your own and reading the lyrics on your own. I'm not trying to represent the song as a whole here in any shape or form. Uh, rather, especially with this song, I'm going to, in some ways, summarize things rather broadly uh, and only touch on a few concrete lines. But this song does do something, I think, that's really quite clever. Right? It plays on that level of engagement, that the whole point of the song is to sometimes zoom out very far and sometimes to zoom in very close. Uh, it starts in that manner, really, in, in the zoomed out way, I suppose. Uh, Mississippi swells, I know, ever drawing line to another time, to the sirens of Chicago or Memphis's eerie glow. So this idea of, of the Mississippi River, I'm assuming, uh, being an ever drawing line, right? And it's continuing to, to draw a boundary, a, a, um, a swath through the country and connecting various cities of very different natures, right? Chicago and Memphis are very different kinds of shit cities. And uh, you get some of that even in the way that he characterizes it, the, the, the uh, lead singer um, for, for this band, Nana Grizzol. Uh, the the sirens of Chicago, right? The the idea that Chicago beckons the nightlife, I suppose, and everything else. Whereas Memphis is, is uh, characterized by an eerie glow, uh, and then the, the next stanza refers to leaving a small town, right? Finding somewhere else to live, a, a larger city. And so the whole song operates on these, these levels of the, the distanced view, the large view, and then the zoomed in view. And they get obscured with one another. They get, they, it becomes ambiguous. They, they get uh, confused or conflated with another, one another quite often in the song. Uh, the next stanza reflects that, I think, quite well. Like how Cindy said, it all seems the same. Embedded in patterns you don't notice. The features out of focus is a shame. The flashlight just falls in the direction you're headed. Right? So, so we're given a name. Who doesn't come? Uh, this name doesn't come back. But the idea is that that we're now zooming in, right? This is a, an experience that the narrator is is uh, saying to to or refl uh, reflecting upon with someone else, right? Someone that is a mutual acquaintance, at least, Cindy. And so, the, and, but notice what Cindy says, it all seems the same, embedded in patterns you don't notice, the features out of focus, it's a shame, the flashlight just falls in the direction you're headed. Now, at least on Genius, the only thing that is actually attributed to Cindy is the first part of that, it all seems the same. But notice how it very quickly moves into this almost academic analysis, right? That living in a city, which is what I'm presuming he means here, although again, I could be wrong, Right. It's not uh, these are not straightforward lines by any means that when we live in a city or really when we live anywhere, we are embedded in patterns that we don't notice. Ways of being modes of, of, of traveling through the area uh, that we don't notice the, the features of our surroundings fall out of focus. Right. That, that, that we don't we don't take note of every little detail. Think about when you've lived in a city for a long time and somebody comes to visit and all the things they noticed that you may never have noticed before. New York's the classic example, of course, and I lived there for 20 years, but I felt like every time somebody would come, my brother would come up or something, we'd go to a neighborhood where I'd been plenty of times and he'd look up a little higher than I guess I'd looked up and notice some architectural feature. And he's not an architect nerd or anything, but he'd notice some architectural feature or some aspect of the block that even though I've walked that area over and over again, multiple times within each week of my of my existence at that point, I hadn't noticed. 
Because as, as the stanza ends, the flashlight falls in the direction you're headed. You're focused on what you're doing. And so it's hard to get a sense of that bigger picture. Um, and yet the, the, the song itself keeps uh, zooming in and out of, of that picture. Um, so much so that, that uh, toward the end of a stanza coming up in the song, uh, he writes and sings um, that, that, that you found time and space you need to sharpen your claws. Part of moving to the city was to, to toughen up, in a sense, to become who you, you were becoming. And hone your eyesight on the skeletons upon which all your little interactions carry on, those that are visible and not metaphysical and hot, the anatomy of everything. So notice that, that part of the, the kind of distancing effect of, of leaving a small town and moving to the city where you're relatively anonymous gives you this kind of analytical insight. And the song keeps, what I think is so clever about this song is that it keeps navigating between the very personal and the, the abstract, the, the, like I said, almost, almost analytical or, right? It, it's clearly, at least in part, a political song that's going to come across pretty clearly in just a second, but it doesn't feel didactic. It doesn't feel like it's proselytizing. It keeps it keeps zooming in and zooming out from the the concrete experience to the abstract understanding of that experience, and so the anatomy of everything. And then my favorite part is what follows, right? So when I got to your city, it was summer, it was pretty, and we walked around because we had the time. You remarked on all the places you hadn't seen in ages disconnected from the metro city lines. So uh, first of all, I like that it comes back to the personal, right? And now the narrator is coming to the city, is visiting the you in the song. When I got to your city, it was summer, it was pretty, and we walked around because we had the time. So they're, they're doing... The opposite of what was just said. They're not. It's not just a flashlight straight ahead to their goal. They're wandering around. In fact, they're going outside of the metro city lines. They're seeing things that the person who lived there hadn't seen for a while. But then notice that we get back to sort of political abstraction, um, looking at the big systemic picture. And uh, disc, uh, and on the closed doors of the fire stations, tenant, testament to forced displacement. Shocked me so to see it from the ground, what seems so functional from great heights looking down. So again, notice the juxtaposition of being close and being far away. Uh, the the fire station bit, right? The, the fire station service neighborhoods, and as certain shifts in either the the neighborhoods are in decay or uh, they're becoming adjuncts to larger neighborhoods. Uh, you know, it's a trend these days, for instance, to turn fire uh, old fire stations into restaurants. That's, a, I think, an interesting symbol of gentrification. What had been a public service meant for anyone within that district is now a, a, a restaurant that can, and usually an upscale restaurant, that can only benefit the few, right? And, and so a testament to forced displacement, the forced displacement of gentrification. And it shocked him to see it when he's on the ground, when he's up close, because from great heights, the city looked solvent. It looked whole. It looked functional, right? Um, and then he continues that 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 abstract view it's, uh, it's but cities observed from planes at some point so deceptively i'll start to seem this look the same uh and it goes on from there so this idea that that from backed out far enough all cities look alike but of course the patterns that we fall into in living with uh, within a city we're falling into those patterns uh within that specific city they, wherever it is we live it's not even just cities of course small towns too they they shape 
our lives in ways that we don't always notice. We think we're living in a city, but really, in a sense, the city is, is living through us. It's operating through us. It's we are conforming to its patterns. And again, this is what I find so enchanting about this particular song. Things like forced displacement, gentrification, uh, the problems with infrastructure, which uh, that, that word also shows up in the middle of the song. You dream of transportation, infrastructure, the bus stations on the blocks between the shops, the lights flicker on and off and on, right? So, so notice how, in one sense, none of us probably spend a whole lot of our time thinking in the abstract about transportation and infrastructure, right? But we live those things. Whenever you're stuck in traffic, whenever your bus doesn't show up on time or the train's late, right? Whenever you're on the subway and it stops in the middle and then they turn off all the lights, you're dealing with infrastructure. You're dealing with the, the issues of transportation. But of course, you're not dealing with them in a systemic way. We don't live systemic lives. We're influenced by the systemic issues. Uh, we are impacted, but we, we live them in a concrete fashion. And so for me, this is a far more interesting song politically uh, and, and ethically than a lot of the songs that try to deal with larger issues. Because it constantly reminds us not only that this, these issues are, are brought to bear, but they're, that they're brought to bear in the concrete moments of our everyday lives. That, that while we might say, well, it's the government's problem to worry about infrastructure, we're the ones that live that infrastructure we're shaped through it. We don't just move through it. We're shaped through it. The infrastructure, the, the forced displacement, gentrification, these systemic issues are a large part of simply how we exist in the world. And they're felt in these concrete moments where we're talking with Cindy about how everything is simply the same.